This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue wattled bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos, made possible by support from the Peace and Disarmament Education Trust. Welcome, friends, to Community or Chaos. We have with us today Alex, Ford, and Phil Murray. Alex is a regional counselor for the ORC, and Phil Murray is chair of CO's Central Otago Environmental Society. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz, oar.org.nz. Welcome to uh, Community of Chaos, hopefully most more community and less chaos. Well, we're talking about the uh, water uh, flow in the um, central Otago, and particularly the health of the river catchment. Do you want to say anything about the river, Phil? Just shortly. Yeah, well, what what's happened with the river is that it's been it's been a modified river for a very long time now, from right from the mining era. But um, and so it's and it's in a naturally stressed environment. The Central Tago is the driest environment in New Zealand, so it's it's naturally a summer stressed environment. But what's happened in the last uh, 10 years in particular has really been the heading towards the death knell of the river because uh, not only have the irrigators been taking out two-thirds of the uh, mean annual low flows at the very time that it's stressed, but um, the huge expansion of irrigation in Central Otago in the last years that has resulted uh, has increased the amount of discharge in the form of sediment from uh, cultivated paddocks and winter feed paddocks and whatever uh, and nitrates and phosphorus and that's put stress on an already stressed environment and the the stats have not been good as far as particularly in the lower sections of the river uh, where the sediments accumulate. And we're getting increasing numbers of signs down, uh, ORC signs down in the 
around Alexandra indicating that you can't swim uh, in low flows because of, because of algal uh, blooms and at high flows because of fecal pollen counts because of from um, off off farms. Uh, been washed off farms. So, yeah, it's got to a pretty serious state, but it's been heading there for quite some time. All right. Alexia, for the last century, water use in central Otago has been regulated by the mining and mineral laws that were legislated for the benefit of mining corporations when mining in central Otago ceased as a major industry. Farmers of central Otago inherited the system and water rights. How has this affected the environment of Central Otago and what's the situation legally today? Well, if we go back to the Goldfields Act of 1862, that established the priority system for water rights. And uh, on the back of those rights, uh, people built some really quite incredible uh, schemes that carried water across the landscape for the purposes of mining. But uh, so they, so they, all of those things were built very early on, um, a century and a half ago. And then when the gold kind of ran out as an economic uh, thing to do in the 1920s, the public works took over the rights, the government public works, and uh, the Falls Dam was built as an employment generator. And eventually the water rights were given back to farmer cooperatives. And they were either given or sold for a dollar. So anyway, those rights, that must have been um, 1921, and the rights to the water were there for, for 100 years. So legally, those mining rights run out this year, uh, October this year, I believe. Uh, when the regional councils were established in 1991, there was a special concession made for Otago people that they would have 30 years, so until um, 2021, to convert existing mining rights to resource consent so that they could be managed under the RMA because under the RMA, those it, it overtook the mining rights and they weren't weren't available under that. So they had to convert them. And any I mean anyone that taking water from anywhere under the RMA had to have consent. And so and one of the issues was that um, the there was more water allocated than is actually in the river at certain times. So the situation um, was pretty dire even back then. And this situation has been managed by the catchment groups for years and years. And these groups, they manage the water as they do today. Um, and they manage the water takes to make sure everyone gets what they need and the river keeps some of its water. And this, I think this has been easier said than done, but over those years, these groups have worked together and they've maintained a mean uh, annual low flow of around 900 litres per second. And uh, that mouth, though, that median, uh, median alpine low flow, oh gosh, I've still got it wrong, annual low flow, is way too low, as the science that we've spent $4 million in passing tells us. Uh, so... And from a Kaitahu perspective, our partners, the catchment groups are an inappropriate way to manage waterways. And because this is management of a public resource through private interests. And that's not only unacceptable to people who think hard about it, but it's entirely unacceptable to Kaitahu. So this is where the whole problem actually sits. Um, and water is a, is a public resource. There's a public duty of guardianship. And that duty is held for the government by ORC. 
So it's bigger and broader than farmers managing their catchments. And we've had, um, Gillian Sullivan wrote an article for, um, uh, I think it was Newsroom or Spinoff? can't remember spin-off. actually one of the spin-off, spin-off article. And it was a bit, and she really captured this history re- really well. And she said that the, you know, the um, 30, 30 years for the ORC to monitor the river, measure the river, study the effects of human use on the river, and 30 years for the farmers to, to transition from their uh, ways of farming to more appropriate ways. They didn't do it. So that's kind of where we sit now, where we actually have to do it. Well, what were the rules under the mining laws? They could take as much water as they liked, really. Well, it was, you know, it was as much water as they liked because the, the river was actually over-allocated. But they managed it among their, among their catchment groups to make sure that everybody got the water that they needed. These were the miners? Well... I don't know how the miners managed it, but when it went when it was given over to the farmers in the 1920s, that's how they managed it. So they could use as much water as they wanted, as long as every farmer got an equal amount. Well, the legal scenario wasn't like that. They had rights to more river than was more water than was in the river, so they obviously had to manage it for their own prosperity, which they did among themselves, among the catchment groups. There wasn't it, the the oversight of governance was um, from from a government or, or um, a governance perspective or a local council perspective, because all of that was before the regional councils were formed. So they had about thirty years to change the rules. I they mean, did. They had 30 years to deal with, with this. And they haven't? Oh, the council hasn't done it. And so now that's what we brought um, Plan Change 7 in for. ORC's had 30 years yes. to come up with something, and they haven't even started, basically. Well, I think it's probably simpler to say than it is to do. But, uh, yeah, that's the guts of it. OIC has had 30 years to do it. They haven't. Uh, they brought in a regional policy statement around water, and that was the very first act of this council, of this current council, as we came in as new councillors, we had a letter uh, from the minister telling us we had to change our ways and get on with this job, and we had um, a report from Judge Peter Skelton telling us to um, that our, our regional policy statement around water was not fit for purpose. So we did that in November, December 2019. We accepted that a major job had to be done. It hadn't been done, and we needed to get on to it with at the highest priority. And that's where we are. We're trying to deal with that. The, the, the ORC for a long time in Otago has really acted as the agent for landowners, basically landowners and the uh, industrial agricultural community. Um, and it's only as a result of um, the National Environmental Standards for fresh water that have come out recently that has actually required the council to do something that they've had shown no intention of doing before. And that is to have some consideration for some wider issues around the river than simply agricultural uh, expansion and development. So the river's really taken a back seat until it's actually been required to actually have some, some a consideration taken of it uh, recently. And the regional council, when Judge Skelton looked at their land and water plan 
found it to be uh, not fit for purpose. So they had to go back to uh, square one and start their land and water plan all over again and actually get some something which they should have done uh, probably several decades ago when they knew this was happening, to actually get some science around the, the river and what flow is required in the river to sustain reasonably robust ecological function. And they needed to get their own science on this. Previously, they've relied on, they relied on applicants to get their science. Uh, and they made decisions incrementally on the basis of individual applications uh, from, from irrigation groups uh, for extraction of water. Um, but that isn't, that isn't really a very sound way to make decisions on in the public interest on the whole river, taking science that was paid for by the, the applicant and making incremental decisions how on, on water take. How important is the river to the general environment of the area, not just to farmers? Well, the river, the river is, for a lot of people, is the heart and soul of Central Otago. Uh, you talk to anyone who who um, lives in Central Otago and visits Central Otago, uh, that the, the river forms a big part of their experience. And I'll, so many people will tell you about camping on the banks of the Manihiraki and swimming in the Manihiraki as kids. And and now, now they can't because the river, the lower reaches of the river where they used to swim is unsuitable. And fishermen will tell you a similar uh, sorry story about how they it used to be quite a good river for trout fishing, and, and it's no no longer. Uh, the upper reaches, sure, uh, Dunstan Creek, still reasonably good uh, fisheries, which is kind of a, a good benchmark for what the Manihirakia might have been. Um, but it's certainly no no longer. So really, the the regional council has been negligent and not meeting its responsibilities over the years. Um, and it, 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 it's only been meeting its responsibilities recently because it has to. And then a, a, a small group of uh, what well, is actually a, a slim majority of councillors um, are doing their best to avoid their responsibilities by putting off noting our minimum flow. Hi. Alex, yeah. uh, what's, how has farming changed in central Otago? And how has farming techniques and the need for water over the last generation changed? Well, I'm not a farmer. That's not my area of expertise. Um, Phil might know a bit more. But my understanding is that because of the relationship between ORC and the farmers or the irrigators, um, didn't actually see this current scenario coming at them. I think they've been led to believe that they would manage to keep some water, that the water that they needed to run increasingly intensive farming businesses as long as they were using efficient methods. Uh, so there's been a lot of investment in the past um, probably 10, 15, maybe 30 years to uh, 
really efficient irrigation systems like bit irrigators, for example, and increasingly intensive farming. But the issue is Jevons paradox, basically. As you get more efficient with the water, you start irrigating new areas of land because you still have rights to the water, so your allocated water goes further, meaning more and more land is intensively farmed, meaning more and more inputs, which means more outputs into the river. Um, so that, uh, in my mind, that's what's seriously changed. Um, what do you think's changed, Philip? Yeah, well, I've, I've got a, a background in agriculture, agriculture commerce, and what, and I've been in this area for a while. And what I I see the changes have been is that originally irrigation was used to support dryland systems, and it was used very inefficiently, mind you, but they were very very cheap. Uh, systems and they relied on a lot of wild flood irrigation, as I say, to support dryland systems with growing uh, growing out young stock and growing winter feed crops, etc. Um, and what what happened about uh, a decade ago is that regional council, uh, l- looking at the pressure that was being put on uh, on water and their need to actually manage the water insisted on the uh, water being more efficiently used, and quite right, rightly so too. And they indicated that uh, wild flood uh, irrigating would be no longer accepted. Uh, so that drove uh, a huge investment into centre pivot irrigation, which is very efficient, but very expensive. And what that drove is intensification, a huge intensification of farming, of agriculture to pay for that system. So um, we have we have dairy dairy farms develop, a lot of uh, winter uh, winter um, grazing of dairy units, so uh, feeding out um, winter feed crops, um, and a lot of it on uh, alluvial highly porous alluvial soils, and quite a, quite a bit of it along the Manurakia uh, River itself, uh, where it's pretty much impossible to keep uh, particularly nitrates in the organic cycle. It just goes into the aquifer and ends up in the, in the river, or if it doesn't wash directly in the river. And of course, there's, there's um, every time you get a big rainfall, particularly with winter feed crops, you get a lot of sediment going into the um, into the small streams and then into the, into the river. So, and you get phosphorus and fecal coliform, uh, particularly given the lack of um, riparian planting. There's been very little progress made in riparian planting. Um, very recently, there's been a bit of attention given to that, but it's very late in the piece. So, we've got a highly we've got a a farming system that's been developed to pay for this expensive irrigation uh, structure that's kind of more, more akin to the Waikato or, or Southland, but in the driest area in, in New Zealand, which requires irrigation to, to run it. So, with, and, and you, I, you, in many respects, you can't blame the farmers for, uh, for this and that they were allowed to do it. Uh, Actually, and they were given indi- every indication that they would get um, their water rights transferred from deemed permits into uh, RMA permits uh, until very recently. Farmers were actually, farming's changed in New Zealand, hasn't it? Uh, I mean, you've seen this, particularly in the Canterbury, but 
It sounds like it's seen it in Central too. Growing different things um, from wool to uh, dairy, for instance. That takes a lot more water, doesn't it? Well, it, it yes, it does. It's become more more intensive, and and it's moved into areas that are summer dry. Um, and dairying's been very uh, very profitable in New Zealand, and land tends to get used for its most profitable use. And but dairying is uh, highly uh, water requiring um, industry. Um, that uh, you know per liter of milk, I don't know what the ratio is, but it's it's very high. Uh, it's a big user of water. Um, and but but the other side of the equation, not only does it use a lot of uh, water, but it, it's it's very hard to retain the discharges from dairy intensive dairying in the organic cycle, and therefore it washes into our our river systems. So it's and there's been no controls or constraints on on uh, dairying being adopted in these places that are totally inappropriate. What would you like to see the government do with, as far as farming, should the government have any sense of direction for agriculture or should it just be left to the individual farmer totally? Well, there's got to be, there's absolutely got to be some, some constraints because individuals will make decisions around what is the most profitable use of their land that they're allowed to do. And if they don't pick up the costs of those externalities, those discharges, then something like like dairying, which has a huge environmental cost, will will occur, but it'll be market failure because it's not the best thing for the country, but it's the most profitable for the individual, only by virtue of the fact that he doesn't pick up the full costs. And from a country, it doesn't make a very sound economic model anyway, because we rely on selling a product to people who are going to pay a premium for it. We, we don't want to get ourselves into just mass producing the cheapest food. Um, and if we expect the, the consumers to pay a premium for it, the consumers are increasingly choosing about the environmental impact of which their food causes and in, in, in produced. And, and Fonterra and Beef and Lamb are very aware of this. And they have been... Um, They've been very running very low profile in the Mini Hirakia. Um, but looking at their submissions on Plan Change 7, uh, they, they do support controls in bottom lines and environmental bottom line standards. Um, so it's not in their interest to have the uh, farmers in the Mini Hirakia producing a product at the cost of the environment, at a patently clear cost of the environment. So that's not an economic model that the farmer wants to base its future on. Andrew, Alexia? I think the government is, um, has made some clear directions and the um, Freshwater Management um, 2020 uh, National Policy Statement is absolutely clear. And Tamana Otewai with a hierarchy of um, of. of, of Priorities. So there's a bunch. There's a bunch of principles 
Um, and and then there's the priorities, and the, the main priority is the first thing you deal with is the health of the river, and that comes before um, anything else. So first, the hierarchy of obligations, here it is right here, in Tamana or Tawai, prioritise for first the health and well-being of water bodies and freshwater ecosystems. Second, the health needs of the people, such as drinking water. Third, the ability of people and communities to provide for their social, economic and cultural well-being now and in the future. So that's incredibly clear. So government has made its directions clear. It's done this on winter grazing rules and all sorts of other things as well. But the government rules are a very blunt instrument. They need to be administered locally by the regional councils, and that is our job. So I, I do believe that's quite clear. And that's what we're trying to do with this, um, the new land and water regional plan, which is currently being written. <coughs> Excuse me. It's currently, currently being written. And that will be notified in 2023. And we should have noted a minimum flow that we, based in the current science, that we plan to include in that plan in 2023, which would give the irrigators a good two years from now to kind of understand where they have to go. But our failure to actually note that and the delays and the um, obfuscation and the just the pushing back and the questioning as delaying noting that flow, which I believe is going to make things far more difficult for the community. I mean, the, the, the government is absolutely clear on what we have to do, but we're doing, we're, we're now bringing up with, within a majority of the council, a slim majority, but a majority nonetheless, every reason to not do it. But I actually wonder about, how the broader economy affects farming and affects New Zealand. Because at one time, we sent wool over to Europe. That was our entire income. Then we sent lamb. And now we're sending dairy, um, dairy mostly uh, powdered milk, mostly to China. And so we've had this constant uh, situation where we depended on one product for our economy. And we've also, and I think we've intensified this in the uh, 1980s and 90s when we destroyed uh, our uh, manufacturing infrastructure and other things we might do besides farming. So don't we have to look at the broader economy as well when we're looking at this? Yes, we, I believe we do. Why aren't we, for instance, why doesn't the government do a lot of effort and research into wool? I mean, plastic should be going out. What re could replace it? Wool could replace it. But we don't. But the government wants to stay hands off when it comes to the economy. We, we're in this interesting nexus, really, when, and it's a, it's a global thing. We're, we're starting to sort of bang up against the reality that we only have one planet and we've got you know, finite resources, and water is one of them, and fresh water is, is one of them. So we're, we're starting to ask ourselves, the, having to ask ourselves the question, what, 
what sort of a, a, a broader environment do we want to do we want to exist in? And the economy serves that that existence and that, that environment. And, and and what part does the economy play in, in that? And it's it's pretty clear to to me that New Zealand's got a unique opportunity to that if it wakes up quickly enough that if it gets beyond moves beyond the pioneering image of eating natural capital to create human capital, uh, we can actually because we've got really good uh, we've got a really smart agricultural industry that we can um, have a really good envi- environment and environmental standards that's a wonderful place to for people to live in and have a profitable agricultural industry. In the future of, of Alexandra, the Alexandra economy isn't to eat its natural capital and degrade its river to produce more food. It's actually to enhance, maintain and enhance the national environment and people will want to come and live here and, and because, it's a, because it's a great place to live, and people will want to come and as tourists because it's a great place to live in. And because it's a great place to live, they'll start, those tourists will stay for a while. So we'll not only have a, a sustainable and functioning agriculture industry that doesn't degrade the environment, but we'll have opportunities for other, other incomes like, like tourism. And people will come and live here and bring high-tech industries here like we're already starting to, to get. So there is so having a a high quality environment is a absolutely essential underpinning of a modern economy. Okay, I think we can have a piece of music now. All day I faced a barren waste without the taste of water. Old Anne and I with throats burned dry And souls that cry for water We've just heard the song uh, Cool Clear Water from the Sons of the Pioneers, and I think that says a lot about what we're talking about. What's the ORC actually doing now? And it comes across as dysfunctional, frankly. Can you talk about... um, Well, what we are doing now is changing over the deemed permits into OMA consents, or consents actually, and they will be enacted under the new land and water regional plan. And that's 
what we're arguing about. Because to do that, we have to establish minimum annual low flows for each of the rivers, the catchments. And we've managed to do that for Cardrona and the Arrow, but Manuhatakea, which is a river that's been so plumbed for such a long time and, and totally modified the environment all around it. So its restoration is really complex and that's, that's where we're stuck at the moment. Um, in terms of the actual council and how it's operating and its leadership, uh, I really do have huge concerns about that and it's immensely troubling for me. Uh, basically, we're seeing a situation where we've got an A-team, and that's the A-team which has a slight majority uh, between six and seven people, depending on who's voting where on any given issue. And that team is operating in its own silo because they have the majority. And I think it would be really wise for the public to keep a very close eye on this decision-making as Central Otago Environmental Society is. Because this group seems to think it can make decisions on its own. And a, that's a very short step because it can override the five people that take a different view. So you can see this polarization's happened. And because it feels it can override that, that's a very short step from there trying to override public process as well. So it really needs... Um, some some good oversight, and uh, this is why we're here today, I suppose. So there is no real open minds. There's no proper discourse. Um, there's really just casting a doubt on the work of scientists and staff and a denial, really, of the situation that we find ourselves in. And this worries me greatly. And um, some may say that I don't have an open mind, but I believe I do. I'm also absolutely committed to not questioning science. Funny enough, I do have science in my background, but not in this area. And um, the attempts also to ignore our partners, Aitahu, uh, which is absolutely wrong. And they have some very, they have their own um, ways of knowing around this issue and know exactly what they think should happen. And that who is well-researched in its cultural um, knowledge and, and it, it's, it's super important. And yet the six or seven are able to convince themselves that doesn't matter, which that amazes me. The next thing is we're attempting to ignore those hierarchy of obligations that I just went through before on, of Tamana or Te Wai, which clearly tells us to put health of the river above any other consideration and clearly and in the land in the act we're clearly told to act with the information to hand rather than delaying for clearer or more information so our council's not doing that you think they can wait another 30 years what if they could and the other thing that really worries me about this, and I hear this a lot um, from people who are horrified at the thought of us um, limiting access to water, and I hear that this quote, it's only 30% of the river that has a problem. I, I just, that mindset is actually phenomenally poor in terms of thinking. If 30% of your body had a problem, how would you feel about that? This is an interconnected system. Everything is connected. To have 30% of it ill is a travesty. 
and it has to be fixed. And it, it really, really worries me that there are people out there thinking it's okay that just a small portion of the river is, is, is in poor health. Do members of the ORC tend to represent different interests in different groups? And are they, to some extent, uh, obligated, have obligations to these interest groups? I believe so, but I believe they should. They they really should be able to put that aside uh, to govern for the benefit of the entire region, which is what we're supposed to do, actually. And um, the, the, I do believe that um, the irrigators are overrepresented on our council and have 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 captured um, a lot of our council. That's that's it has been a historic fact in uh, in Central Otago, and unfortunately, it's a it's a bit of a um, phenomena of local body politics is that because of the very low turnout, you get people who turn out to both stand for as councillors and to vote who have got immediate vested interests. Um, so you do get um, a distorted representation of, of interests in, in the council. But, um, you know, that is the reality that, that we've, we've got. But it is unfortunate to see the lack of uh, vision and lack of leadership, as Alexa says, in, in the regional council uh, about you know how they how they see the future and to, to see a future um, that lives with a degraded environment um, seems to be a total failure in, in leadership and a pretty pretty poor not a vision for the future. What are your recent, recent public meetings came across as quite chaotic? And you had a councillor ramble on about how trout was the worst problem and it was damaging the indigenous fish and to allure the river was actually good for the environment. How did that happen? Holy moly, this is the doubt casting I'm talking about. This is a particular lobby doing its damnedest to divert the, the course of justice and to, to not look after the river. It's, you know, it's just unbelievable. And now that story, it is an interesting background to it. That story came from a letter from Doc and I, they hung a whole argument and in fact a whole notice of motion on the back of a letter from Doc and used it to underpin an alternative motion calling for a, a low river flow, a too low river flow. Doc, I think what Doc was actually trying to do with that letter was to asking for a stepped approach that would give them time to install fish barriers at the tributaries because trout are a pest species in the tributaries and they can decimate the, late, the native fish, the galaxids. Um, but they twisted that letter around to say that Doc was saying a low flow would be better for native species. And that that was such a twisted thing. And uh, there was really a scrambling to cast doubt on the science and to cast, you know, the fish would be much skinnier, even the natives. The native fish can survive in a lower river, but they survive very poorly. And yes, we do have to manage um, trout going up the tributary so that they don't um, scoff all those fish and uh, you know become a real a, a rabbit of the rivers. But that's that's quite possible to do. 
Um, but I was just absolutely amazed how they managed to take that argument from Doc and try and sort of twist it into this support for Lower River. How did you see it, Phil? Well, that, that was a, a desperate excuse to maintain the current uh, extraction for irrigation. Uh, un, under the guise of being concerned about uh, the native galaxies, the problem of which we all know about, uh, the potential problem you have when you raise the river and actually put a little bit of water back into the tributaries. But that has a very simple solution, as Alexa alluded to, in the construction of a few weirs. So there's no justification to maintain a whole degraded aquatic ecosystem uh, just to protect the, the glaxes. You, you wouldn't go about it that way, and Doc wouldn't advocate to go about it that way. So Is there it's very, it was a pretty poor excuse. Is there anything that could have been done to, it seems like the, a lot of the council decision-making and discussion is about personalities. Is there anything that could have been done to, so it hadn't, wouldn't have moved in that direction? I don't really think it is about personalities. I think it's about interest groups and vested interests. And, and funnily enough, we don't seem to have such problems making decisions in other areas. It's really about the water, which is where we have problems. And that's because there's so much economic economics involved. Yeah. Absolutely. People Absolutely. And this is, this is what's driving this. And, and it's sad that it's been characterised as such a tribal tribal battle here because and I feel I feel deeply for some farmers out there there's there are some very good farmers out there who uh, are doing the right thing and know where their real future is and that is not to degrade their aquatic environment that they coexist with but this is a battle over ownership of a public resource uh, and whether it should serve the broader public in maintaining an aquatic ecosystem uh, before it actually serves uh, farming irrigation, which is actually, what, as Alexa pointed out, what the law says. First, you've got to serve the, the aquatic ecological function of the river, uh, and, and then after that, you serve the irrigation. Well, so we've got a, we've got a lot of backtracking to do. Um, and and that is that's largely the fault of the regional council and just representing a, a narrow interest. Is there some problem with the way regional councils are elected? Either of you? I I think I think it, it we do have problem with. Uh, people not being educated enough in the importance of voting in local body elections and the important role that regional councillors play in allocating uh, public resources like water. And people need to wake up to the fact that they need to put their vote in and be counted What's if the they want their interest in the resource to be managed properly. What's the voting system... It's not, what's it based on? 
when you have a, what's the election system in the regional councils as opposed to well it's, it's a local government election it's first past the post in our area That's and right. when and it's a, it's, it's con, a ballot conducted by mail as in all local government should it be yes STV or something like that yes and some councils are I I think STV would give us a better result in this area um, and some councils do do that, and I think that we should. But, um, again, we haven't uh, managed to agree that. And, again, vest the vested interests that exist around water are probably better served with the first-past-the-post system. So it'd be interesting. I don't know. I, I think that, but um, really it needs the public to say that, say what they want, and to get on with it. And uh, I, I don't think the system's wrong at this point I think it's failing us because of our own failure because I see it working around other issues around natural hazards uh, even transport we have a lot of problems with transport and yet we actually work together pretty constructively around all of these other issues and natural hazards is a really um, fraught area and yet yet we work very well in that and accept the view of the scientists when they bring us stuff and so on but uh, around water, we just seem to not be able to get there. It, 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 it is symptomatic of a, the broad dilemma that we have with natural resource science. And the, and the big challenge is we seem to have to go there in, in degrading our resource before we, we value it. And we've done this with climate change. Yep. We had to be well down the track of climate change before anyone would seriously you know take it seriously and it's it, it's sad we're going we're going to do this with manhirakia which we've allowed a, a structure of agriculture inappropriate pattern of agriculture to set up around the manhirakia that's absolutely unsustainable for the nature to sustain an ecological function in the river in that particular climate we're, we're going to have to back up like we're going to have to back up with um our structure around fossil fuels so, yeah, it is the, in the nature of resource management. Right? We have to go there before we, we actually realise how important it is. And regional councils have um, traditionally, from their very first establishment, um, voted. we have traditionally put farmers in charge of regional councils. Yeah. It's really only in recent years you're getting a bit more of a spread of um, backgrounds across the councillors. And I think we need to do a bit more of that. And if, uh, I do think the it would be wise for the public to engage further in all local government, actually. Yeah. And this takes us through, through into all sorts of issues um, that, that are deep in our, our democracy. And it takes us back to our treaty partnership and our, our um, inability to decide on the history that we teach in schools, our local history. There's all sorts of stuff that sort of systemically have created this position that we probably need to unpick. It's probably not the mechanism itself that's a, yeah. a problem. Yeah. It's, it's probably our um, inability to have engaged correctly, which is based in all sorts of things, including lack of history education, lack of civics education, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So all of these things need to be slowly unpicked. I think you're absolutely right there, Alexa, that, that in the Otago Regional Council really um, hasn't invested uh, in public engagement at all, really, in the past. It hasn't encouraged the participation. So um, probably for 
I'm afraid for fairly nefarious reasons. But this term, it has, which is why we're having so much attention on all of these issues, because of this term, we made that conscious um, uh, effort and said we need to do a whole lot more, which is why everybody's rates have gone up 45%, because we are doing a lot more, and we are engaging uh, far more too. public engagement that Alex was talking about, and she's absolutely right, they have gone out recently, and they did go out recently with a, a scenario support on the Menhira Care, and that, the result of that report came back that the majority of people wanted uh, one of the higher flows. So it was quite clear that the, the majority of the public want to see a resilient, robust, ecologically functioning river, uh, which is contrary to what... Uh, the the elected representatives uh, are suggesting. Can the government force the council to act on this without taking over the council? Yes, yes, and it has. The government uh, forced us to take action on this um, by um, telling us by 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 commissioning the skeleton report and telling us to go back and start again. And that's what we're doing. But the, as part of the start again, we've been having these conversations around the rivers, and and um, but those conversations are still dominated by the economic space, and it's very interesting because the consultation that um, Phil's talking about, uh, where the majority of people wanted that higher flow, almost we did. I didn't quite hear this directly, but the underlying message was. Most of those people aren't living here. So the underlying message was that the economic argument from those that are living and relying on the river for their livelihood should have more say than the others. But our law does not work that way. So they shouldn't, and our consultations don't work that way. So anybody who decides to engage with consultation has a say. Now, we don't have to implement what people say that they want, but we do have to consider it. And and it did worry me that people were willing to uh, have less regard to the um, wants of, say, people from other parts of the district that weren't relying on that river economically. The precedent in Canterbury environment wasn't great for government uh, commission because Canterbury environment at that point was trying to protect their water, particularly their purity, and offended the large dairy companies. And they brought in, and the government brought in a commission so they could go ahead with overwhelming amount of irrigation. Uh, the national, in fact, Wyatt Creech uh, was one of the people who was in charge, and his own company had been fined in a manner or two for breaching regulations on water purity. This is absolutely my problem with the idea of bringing in commissioners, and I know um, Central Otago Environmental Society have put forward the petition asking for that, and that's absolutely fine, that's their right to do. But personally, I am uh, very. Uh, completely opposed, actually, to bringing in commissioners. They're political appointments, and the, the, the political party of the day will have a say, and, and that'll be it. And we might do okay under the current government, 
but it's a very, very blunt tool, and it caused an appalling mess in Canterbury. And uh, the also the political appointments running the DHBs did not help us out. I, I think that we need to work out our local decision-making and, and really put the pressure on the decision-makers to do better work. And at the moment, that pressure is being put on by two groups, the farmers and the environmental societies two opposing groups. I want to see many, many more of the public coming in with their thoughts. And we've had that in the consultation piece, but we still need even more. And I and I want to see us uh, vote with our feet, you know, vote with our with, with our pens and papers at the next election and 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 really think about who we want us um who we want to represent us and do this job better. Well speaking of Petitions, would you consider a petition to support uh, proportional representation of some kind? Well, certainly this is a this is a issue over the whole country. Is uh, is is local body politics, politics working with um, the low turnout and what we end up with a kind of first past the post decision making, which is what we've had in the OIC. So. So um, I don't know whether um, Central Tiger Environment Society would take on that. That's almost a national issue that's got to be considered, and it, and it probably is probably better for one of those uh, groups who deal at a na national level. Um, however, that is that is at the heart of the matter. Really, is how local body, body politics work. So I'm I, I'm more focused on. Resolving the men here at Kia, and I'm, I'll be very interested to see Minister Parker's going to have a very interesting decision to make. Is is he prepared to stand by and see the current Otago Regional Council subvert the intention of the National Environmental Standards for fresh water, which is what they are, and and in this and until they note a realistic minimum flow, um, then what needs to happen, which is going to take time to happen, won't won't happen. It needs to start now. So they need to note a, a realistic minimum flow that will may, uh, achieve the Tamano to Y, um, and that's going to facilitate a change in land use. And there's a big, there's a lot of changes that need to go on, and they might even involve water rights being your know, compensation or water rights being brought back and compensation for some rules around uh, land use, constraints on land use and alluvial flats around the Maniokia. So Councillor Park has got a very interesting decision to, uh, Minister Park has got a very interesting decision to make there. Uh, what do you have to say about this? I think Phil's absolutely right. That's about all I need to say about that. Uh, I, th I think that we are um, members of our council are trying to subvert um, okay. the rules. I think we're, we've talked about the major questions, and I think the public, if they're listening to this, have an idea what's going on and what needs to happen. And perhaps um, would you like to see the public put more pressure on the council and on elections? Absolutely, and that's what we are trying to do in uh, in codes is is to 
hold the regional council accountable. Okay. Uh, accountable to that majority that expressed itself in that public survey on the scenarios okay. for me here. Thank you both for taking part in this. I've appreciated your uh, information you've given us and your willingness to speak out. Cheers. Thank you, Marvin. Thank you. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.